Well, good morning, church. As we, we turn to our text in Acts today, we're, we're turning to a passage that, that's really, um, it's, it's actually rather difficult for many modern Christians even to come to to begin with. Um, and at the same time, it's a passage that has been horribly leveraged by, by prosperity preachers to sell every manner of miracle-producing item like prayer claws and anointing oils and holy water. In light of this, what I want to do is, is I want to begin by actually situating our text within the immediate context of what's been going on. What's been going on in the book so far? Because it's once we see what Luke has been doing, we can understand what is going on in this text. So let's just dial back to last week, chapter 18. We were introduced to a guy named Apollos. He was an eloquent man. He was competent in the scriptures, and he taught the things about Jesus accurately, right? But for everything that Apollos had right... He, he did have a problem. He, he, he didn't quite understand how the baptism of John was supposed to be working. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard this and recognized it, they invited him over. They had him over for lunch so they could explain the way of God more accurately to him. And, and so we saw in Apollos a true Christian who simply needed a little bit more instruction. He, he just needed some things straightened out in his theology. At the same time, last week in chapter 19, we were introduced to 12 disciples who only knew the baptism of John and, and had never heard of the Holy Spirit. Paul meets him, Paul talks to him, he asks him questions, he recognizes what's going on, and he explains to them that John's baptism was all about preparing people to believe in Jesus Christ when he came. And upon hearing that, they believe, they're baptized, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in these 12 disciples we saw last week, we were presented with an example of devout Jews who are pursuing righteousness, but have missed the gospel. They need the gospel. For all they're doing, all of their righteousness, they're still short of what they need. They need to come to faith in Christ. So they'd inadvertently missed the gospel altogether. So we come to our passage today. And we shouldn't be very surprised that it revolves around another gospel deficiency. It's another gospel deficiency. And and what I mean by this is that even though Luke provides us with a record of Paul's preaching and his mind-blowing miracles... The story revolves around a band of Jewish exorcists who attempt to access the power of Jesus apart from saving faith in Jesus. And what happens in their attempt to speak a word of power against this demon? What happens? The demon overpowers them and the event triggers a a city-wide response of the fear of the Lord that results in repentance and obedience among the people of God. So so what does Luke want us to see in this passage today? I think it's this. I think in the disgrace of the exorcists and in the response of the church, he wants us to see that Jesus is not a magical power to be mastered. 
He's not a magical power to be mastered. He's not a magical power to be manipulated to our own choosing. No, he's a powerful Lord to be feared and worshipped and obeyed. That's who Jesus is. So let's turn to our text as we see the apostles' impact beginning in verses 8 through 10. Speaking of Paul, he's in Ephesus. He entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the howl of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, now we're not going to spend a lot of time in these verses here, but I want you to point out what we, what we actually see here is that Luke is actually summarizing two years of gospel ministry. Three verses. Two years. And, and to be honest... We, we, look in the, we look at these verses, and, and to a degree, there's not really anything surprising in these verses. Where does Paul normally begin when he begins his ministry when he goes into a new town? He starts in the synagogue. He starts with the Jews, unless there's no synagogue. That's what he does. And in this case, he's allowed to be there for roughly three years. And, and he preaches the gospel as long as he can in every instance until the synagogue people drive him out. They finally say, no more. So Paul does that. He preaches. He preaches the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, in these three months, he, even had, he, he has a broader range in his teaching, preaching about the kingdom of God, how, how the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises are wrapped up in Jesus Christ. That this kingdom that God promises a time when God's people will be in God's place and under God's rule. And he's like, that's in Christ. Yet as he's driven out, what does he do? Same thing he's done. He transitions to a more public ministry that's available to both Jews and Gentiles alike. This time in the hall of Tyrannus. Two years Two years preaching in the hall of Tyrannus. And then this allowed him not only to preach to the people in Ephesus, but the countless travelers and merchants and philosophers that, that made their way through Asia and traveled through Ephesus. The teaching is spreading everywhere. And what's the result? The result we see here at the end is that it's not just a city impacted by the gospel. But the entire region of Asia. Now that's not saying every person in Asia, but it's just saying the the, the word of the Lord, that the gospel is going out everywhere through all the regions of Asia. Because of Paul's ministry. As we've seen through the entire book. Theme, time and time again, nothing can stop the advance of the gospel because God is actively empowering its advance through his spirit-empowered witnesses. That's what God's doing. The gospel's going out. And if Luke had stopped here and transitioned to verse 21, we might have had a nice, clean, and rather modern narrative. If he had jumped all the way to verse 21, it would have gone something like this. Paul preaches in Ephesus for two years and all the residents of Asia hear the gospel. 
And on account of this gospel impact, people stopped buying their little golden, their, their silver statues of Artemis, and the silversmiths decided to throw a riot in the city to protect their bottom line. Now that does happen, but something happens in between. Verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his, his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So as we come to these two verses, let's highlight a couple important things. Who's doing the miracles? Luke is very clear. God is the one doing the miracles. Paul is the agent through whom that God is working. But Paul doesn't have any power inherently in and of himself. It's not his power. Number two, while every true miracle is an act of God, the adverb here, extraordinary, reminds us that some miracles are, are we might say, more miraculous than others. I mean, it's like, it's a, it's a miracle, Mark. No, no, there are some miracles that are extraordinary. I think you're carrying away, carrying away a piece of fabric and it's healing somebody. That's extraordinary. And this is important because it emphasizes the fact that these truly are over-the-top miracles. Luke is saying, like, this is just crazy, but God's doing it. God's, God's doing it. But why? One of the things that God is doing here is he is authenticating Paul's apostleship. And he's verifying his gospel message in a city that is steeped in magic. We see that at the end of this section, right? These people come out and burn their magic books. See, see that, that's one of the things that's going on here. God is, God is showing Paul to be his true apostle and he's showing that he truly has power. When we think of the apostleship, who else has performed healing miracles, anything close to this? It's been only two people, Jesus and Peter, right? We have the woman who comes up behind Jesus and touches his robe, his healed. We have Jesus healing the guy's servant who's a long ways away. We have, we have the record earlier in Acts of, of, of Peter walking down the line and, and people hoping to get healed by his shadow. So, so we, have this, we have this vindication and authorization of Paul's apostleship. And the effortlessness, the effortlessness of these healings in a city that is just captured by magic it's, it's proving. It's God's way of proving the gospel is real. In addition to it, the costlessness of these miracles, the costlessness, it indicates that, that, that the Paul is not some money-grubbing charlatan who's pimping the gospel to line his own pockets like the silversmiths are later on in the chapter. They really only care about their bottom line. They don't really care about their God Artemis. They just care that they're making money. But all this still leaves us with a little bit of a question. While it's abundantly clear 
in the text that Paul is not selling these miracle rags. How are people acquiring these handkerchiefs and aprons? Things that aren't told. I mean, is, is he's like, are they like bringing him, he's blessing them and they're taking them? Something else going on? Well, even though Luke doesn't tell us directly in the text, most, most scholars believe that what's going on here is much the same as the woman who came up behind Jesus. It, it is that people are taking them without Paul's knowledge. We, we know when he's here in Ephesus that he is also plying his trade as a tent maker. People grabbing the little dirty rag that he wipes the sweat off his face with. There's, there's, they say that this is most likely what's going on here. But the notable difference between the miraculous healings of Jesus and Peter with Paul here is especially that God is extending his healing authority well beyond the physical presence of Paul. It's an extraordinary way that God in his divine sovereignty is choosing to work in an area to vindicate the gospel message. It's real. My power is real. Listen and hear and respond. Which brings us to the failure of the exorcists, starting in verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. We'll just stop there for a minute. You know, you know when, it, when it comes to this traveling band of Jewish exorcists, it's important to point out a couple things. Number one, the biggest thing being is that, that we have no record. There, there's no record that this, this guy, Sceva, has ever truly served as a high priest in Jerusalem. And it's most likely something that most of Luke's readers know. It's possible he's connected to the priestly line, so he's, he's of the priestly line. Maybe that's how it's going on. Maybe he's part of the aristocracy. Maybe that's pit. And it could, just, could simply be they're a traveling group of Jewish guys who are taking on this name because nobody else can go back and verify it in Ephesus. So, so we're, we're not quite sure. All we know is that he, he, this guy was never really a high priest. And I think it's Luke's way of telling us that this band of brothers are claiming to be something that they're not. They're not. In fact, we see this even more clearly when they start employing Jesus' name as a magical word of spiritual power in their exorcisms. See, see, don't miss this. They're, They're not like Apollos. They're not like Apollos who was a Christian but needed a little bit more instruction. They're not like the 12 disciples of John the Baptist who loved God but needed to still hear the gospel. No, these men are religious charlatans who think that Jesus is nothing more than a power they can declare or a powerful deity they can manipulate by knowing and speaking his name. That's what they think Jesus is about. And and this is important to point out because in the ancient world, magicians believed a person could control a demon by invoking or by calling on the name of that spirit. 
If you knew their name, you can control them. Speak their name, you find out their name, you can control them. Either by their name or by knowing the name of a much more powerful spirit, you could then bend the lower spirit to do your will. So you see, notice the key in all of this was simply knowing the name. You just had to know the name. And they'll do anything you want them to by your command. And what did these men hear in Paul's preaching over and over and over again? What did they no doubt hear as, as Paul was probably also performing miracles personally? They're hearing the name of Jesus. They're hearing the name of Jesus. And as a result, they don't come to Jesus for forgiveness of sins. They, they don't come and accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. They, 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 they're not hearing the message, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whosoever believed in him will not perish but have everlasting life. They're not hearing that message. Though it's there. They're hearing the name of Jesus and thinking they can lift it for their own ends. But they quickly discover that Jesus' name carries no power and it carries no authority for those who do not already belong to Jesus Christ. They don't belong. Verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on mastered them all and overpowered them so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, now, did you notice the biting irony in these verses? I mean, the demon completely brushes off their attempt to overcome him in the most acidic terms. Sure, I know Jesus and I recognize Paul. Who in the world are you? Who do you think you are? Right? I mean, that's his question. Who are you? And, 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 and in this singular question, he exposes the most fundamental flaw in the exorcist's approach to spiritual warfare. It helps us see it's not a matter of finding the right formula. It's not about discovering words of power. No, it helps us see that the true source of spiritual power is the identity of the individual. Do they know Jesus? Are they one of Jesus' people or are they not? That's the key. Jesus had the power to drive out evil spirits because he was Israel's Messiah and God Almighty. Paul had the power to expel evil spirits because he was working because God was working directly through him. Jesus was his savior and lord. Whereas the sons of Sceva here in the text are utterly powerless. They're powerless because they're trying to tap into the power of Jesus apart from repenting of their sins and coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They want the benefits of Jesus apart from embracing him as their hope of forgiveness and a right relationship with God. 
They want him for something other than salvation. And what happened in the end? The exact opposite of what these guys are hoping to accomplish. The demon-possessed man not only mastered them, that is, that is, he gained power over them. They thought they had power over him, but no, no, he gains power over them. He utterly thrashes them, leaving them no other option but to run for their lives in all of their nakedness and shame out of the house. The power of Jesus is reserved for those who truly belong to Jesus. Now at this point in the story, we we might think that Luke is trying to interject some humor into the story with this conversation and with these men running out naked out of the house. But I'm not really sure that that's the case for for, for two, two main reasons. Number one, the demon-possessed man in the text is still in utter bondage to the demon, isn't he? He has no hope. He has no power. He can't free himself. He desperately needs someone to rescue him. Secondly, as the news of this event spreads throughout the city of Ephesus, What's the result? Is it laughter? It's not. It's fear. Fear spreads through the entire city. Let's pick it up in verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greek. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of Jesus was extolled. Let's, let's stop there for a minute. So, so, so how in the world, how in the world does a failed exorcism result in fear and worship? How does it result in fear and Jesus' name being extolled? Well, on the one hand, it produces a deep sense of fear because people in this city already fear demons. They already fear the spirits. And these men's failure only served to remind everyone that demons are dangerous and they're not to be trifled with. So, So there's a fear on one side of what they've just seen in this failure. But that's only a small part of the fear. Let's get to the real essence of fear. The fear we're kind of talking about in this text is the most beneficial fear in that it is the fear of the Lord. That's the fear. Because the exorcist's epic failure highlighted the true power and the worth of Jesus Christ. Their their failure shows people something about who this Jesus is. See, see the, and when we talk about the fear of the Lord here, we see it in the text. Fear of the Lord is not a cowering, servile fear. 
but it's an awe-inspiring and sin-exposing event that enables people to grasp the true nature of God and their desperate need for his grace. That's what the fear of the Lord is. We see God more clearly. We see our sin more clearly. Proverbs 9, verse 10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Where do we even begin to find wisdom in this world? Solomon says it's first of all in understanding who God is. If we don't understand who God is and his holiness and his righteousness and his justice, we'll never see our sin for what it is and experience his forgiveness and love that he extends in Jesus Christ. See, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because apart from him, we think we have it all together. Apart from rightly understanding God, we think we have everything fine in life. We think that we're doing okay. We think we can manage it on our own. We think that our righteousness is enough. We think that our good works are great enough. We think that our church going is all that God wants. We think that our baptism does something magical and preserves us. But all this changes when we see God for who he truly is. And we begin to see our sin in the light of his perfect holiness. It's only, it's only in the light of God's holiness that we can even grasp the true depths and the, and the need we have in our sin. And what does this kind of fear produce? This fear doesn't cause us to run away from God. No, it causes us to run towards him. In repentance, that's what we see going on in the text. This fear produces a deep-seated sense of God's worth and it overflows not only into expressions of heartfelt worship but public acts of confession and repentance. Verse 18 through 20. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices and a number of those who had practiced magical arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all and they counted the value of them and found it to it came to 50,000 pieces of silver so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily now at this point I want to I just want to slow down and I, and I want everybody to catch what just got said in this text. Who is bringing their magic books out to burn? Who's bringing their magic books? Who's secretly practicing their magical arts at home? Up until the moment they hear, who's practicing magic? It's Christians. It's Christians. Who's messing around with the occult? It's Christians. And to this we might ask, are we talking about true Christians? Not fake Christians? 
I mean, we've, through the entire book of Acts, we've been seeing, we've been making a comparison between those who truly come to faith in Jesus and those who don't come to faith in Jesus. Everything that we can see in the text, everything that Luke tells us in this text is that these are true, born-again Christians. Men and women who've repented of their sin and they've embraced Jesus as their only hope of forgiveness before God. Men and women who've been publicly recognized by the church as true Christians in baptism. Men and women who may very well have been active in the everyday life and ministry of the church. Christians. But as we see in the text, men and women who are still mired in the magical practices that they used to depend on for health and safety and security. I mean, after all, isn't that what magic promises? Why are they going to the magical arts? They're going to it for some sort of power and protection for their health and their safety and security and their finances. They, 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 need a, they, they need a spiritual force field to protect them. And as Christians, they believe in Jesus. But for one reason or another, they're still holding on to their magic as a backup just in case Jesus don't work. Got to have a backup plan just in case this Jesus thing doesn't fly. They're holding on. I want you to see this because almost every single Christian struggles with the sinful baggage of their life before Jesus Christ. Every Christian. Whether that be pornography whether that be sinful pursuits of sexual pleasure, whether that be status or money or anger or unforgiveness or, the, or their religious trappings of things that they were involved in, the religions they followed before Christ. All of those things are, are, are still some way connected to us often when we come to faith in Christ. They don't just go away. In some, some glorious cases, God does. He cuts them right away. But in most cases, they're still present. And I want you to see this because even though we are justified by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the moment we come to faith in Christ, our new status in Christ launches us into an incredibly messy process called sanctification. That, that, that's, that's the process where we actually grow in holiness in our everyday life. Yes, God has declared us to be holy in Jesus Christ. We have all of Jesus' righteousness. We're forever accepted. We're never going to be cast out. But at the very same time, what, what goes on in our life is that actual righteousness becomes part of our life over time. We grow in righteous living. Because of who we are. But 
But it brings us to the question, what brings the kind of open repentance and change that we see in this passage? Everyone struggles with sin. Everyone has long-standing patterns of sin that they've held on to for decades. Some because you're still trying to coddle it. Others, you hate it and you can't seem to overcome it. What makes it happen? What compels these Christians to come into the light of day? Not to a quiet, private confessional. but in front of the church in full public to confess their sins and burn a pile of books that's worth the combined yearly salary of 137 men. I mean, we all, we all in our hearts, we want to overcome sin. I think we do. But at the same time, we cannot imagine coming before the entire church. And they do. It wasn't the power of Paul's miracle rags that made it happen. It was the epic miracle failure of these Jewish exorcists. Because what, does it do? what did it do? It exposed the true emptiness of their magic and the unbridled power and majesty of Jesus Christ. It showed their magic to be what it was. And it revealed the power of Christ for who he is. And on account of this public repentance and rejection of their magic books, what happens in Ephesus? We're told that the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. This is amazing. It's an amazing work of God. So how about application? How do we apply this? There's a number of different roads we could take. I think a good one that, that I have not taken this morning, it might even be good in small groups, is trying to think of what are the various ways that people come to Jesus for power, but they don't want to take all of Jesus. You know, I want Jesus for a good marriage. I want Jesus to help my kids not mess up in life. Like, I, I, want, I want Jesus to do those things for my family, but I don't really want Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. Just fix the broken stuff. That, that's one way. And in Christ, God does give us good families, and he does repair much brokenness, and he helps preserve our kids. But I'd like to just, I'd like to focus on one point to ask what is the greatest antidote for a sin-divided heart? What's the greatest antidote 
for a sin-divided heart. I think the answer in the text tells us it is the fear of the Lord is the greatest answer for a sin-divided heart. Why do you and I keep sinning? Why do we cling to sinful patterns of behavior long after we come to faith in Christ? Why do we do it? Even more, why do we continue to do it even though we know better? See, it's not even that we don't know better. We do it. I think the simple answer is that we believe that we can get some sort of pleasure or safety or reward out of our sin while we're still holding on to Jesus Christ. See, we're not holding on to magic. At least, I don't know. Hopefully not. But the magic is promising a payback. What does our sin promise? A payback. Protection, safety, security, pleasure. I mean, after all, that's what sin does. Sin holds out promises. Sin doesn't say, hey, if you do this, look at the wreck you're going to make out of your life. No, it holds out promises. In fact, the truth of the matter is that we can actually experience a degree of pleasure in our sin. If we didn't, we wouldn't do it again. But it's here and gone. So we can experience a degree of pleasure in our sin, but that sin always comes with a spiritual price. There's a price. On the one hand, what does it do? It blinds us to the holy majesty and to the infinite worth of Jesus Christ. Our sin blinds us. And at the same time, while blinding us, it sears our conscience to the magnitude of our double-mindedness and our willing rebellion. We can't see it for what it is in light of His holiness, and we cannot feel it because our consciences are increasingly seared by the sin that we continue in. See, see, this is why we're good at rationalizing and excusing our sin as Christians. We can't see Christ for who he is and we can't sense or feel the true weight of our sin for what it really is. And I want you to see this because I recognize that the intense focus of, of, on the gospel in our study of Acts could cause some of you at times to maybe struggle with your assurance as you're looking at, at these people and we focused on how close they come and they missed the gospel. And you might be wondering, like, like where am I really at? I want you to see there's some hope in our passage today. 
Because what do we see in our passage? We see that true born-again Christians can harbor some rather large sins. That is what we see in our text. Yeah, Christians can have some big mess in their life. And I want to make it clear. Yeah, we can be the very people that even in Christ we are coddling our sin instead of killing our sin just like the Christians in this text today who are holding on their magic books. That can be us. And the the truth of the matter When we think of just our life as a Christian, we're going to be locked in a battle with sin our entire life. I mean, that is the Christian life. We have no promise that God is going to zap us out of the sky and make us perfect. There is no promise of perfectionism. No, we have a God who promises that he will forgive all of those who come in repentance. That's the promise we have. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Not one Christian ever. We don't come to church to celebrate how awesome we are before God. Not what we're here for. We are a group of sinners saved by grace. And we come to celebrate his worth and his love. Our unworthiness. That's what we celebrate. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, the thing that we can't do. He cleanses us. That's grace and that's mercy. But each of us know we still struggle to do this very thing. We, we can hear that and we can still struggle to come to God and ask for forgiveness. We can still struggle to come and repent of our sin. Like that, that's how messed up we are. What do we need to break the cycle? What do we need to break the cycle? We need to see God for who he truly is. We need to see him. We need to see. Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1. Most of you know this passage. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings and two he covered his face and two he covered his feet and with two he flew and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And how does Isaiah reply? I just feel so warm inside. I can tell I'm close to Jesus because I have warm, fuzzy feelings. No. Woe is me. I'm lost. 
a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Man, he doesn't dance around in ecstatic jubilation. He doesn't bask in the glow of God's holiness. No, he falls apart at the seams. Because he sees God for who he truly is. Holy. But given the fact that visions like these are incredibly rare even among the prophets, even among the prophets, incredibly rare, like, like, how are we supposed to see God for who he truly is? How's this supposed to happen? Well, let me answer that with another question. What drove the Ephesian Christians to repentance in the text? Did these Ephesian Christians have a vision? The answer is no. The Ephesian Christians heard a story. They heard a story about a failed exorcism. They heard. They didn't see. And when we carry that forward, we need to think about it. What do we have in the Bible? What do we have in God's word? We have hundreds and hundreds of accounts of God's faithfulness and his holiness and his love and mankind's sinful rebellion. We have that in God's word. True historical accounts that help us see God for who he truly is and help us see our desperate need for his continuing grace in our lives. How do we see? We see God in his word. How are we going to refine the kind of repentance and need? How do, we, how do we get convinced to the gravity of our sin? We're going to find it as we come to God in his word. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's what God's word does. Friends, this is where we find the fear of the Lord. This is where we find the fear of the Lord and this is where we find the power to battle the sins that each and every single one of us struggle with in our lives and our insecurities. This is where we find the power. See, God's word is a lamp that shines in the dark recesses of our heart into the darkest corner. God's word is a sword that cleaves through our self-deception. God's word is a medicine that heals our deepest wounds and makes us whole. And God's word is the very food by which we live and we grow and we mature in holiness as Christians. Friends, the battle to overcome sin and to delight in Christ is a battle to see and to feel. And that only happens in the light of God's revealed word. Let's close in a word of prayer.